There's no justification for terrorism. There's no excuse. Hamas does not stand for the Palestinian people's right to dignity and self-determination. Its stated purpose is the annihilation of the state of Israel on the murder of Jewish people. They use Palestinian civilians as human shields. Hamas offers nothing but terror and bloodshed with no regard to who pays the price. Our condemnation belongs squarely with terrorists who have brutally murdered, raped, kidnapped hundreds, hundreds of Israelis. Uh, there can be no equivocation about that. There are not two sides here. There are not two sides. So a pretty consistent message from President Biden's address and uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre in the press room that there's really not two sides to this story. There's one side of the story, which is that Hamas uh, acted in unbelievably savage ways against civilians on purpose in Israel. But the question, the conversation, the things that people sometimes say are, well, you know, look, Hamas is killing people. And now Israel, of course, in response, is also killing people. Hamas killed children, uh, horribly, terribly, awfully beheading some of them. I mean, it was just disgusting stuff to think about. But of course, in retaliation in destroying buildings and uh, civilian areas, you have children are dying in the Gaza Strip just as well. And people will say, I've heard them say, uh, well, one side is killing, the other side is killing. What's the difference? I, as a uh, philosopher, you know, I take very seriously the concepts of just war theory and uh, authorized state action and discrimination of targets and legitimate ends and all of the things that go along with that. So I think there are tremendous differences between the two. But I wanted to talk about it with you because it is the thing that people are talking about. Is there a meaningful difference between the killing that Hamas has done and the killing that Israel has done? You know, I'll say this. I mean, you know, some people are familiar with the non-aggression principle, which basically says you do not commit violence against somebody who is not committing violence against you or somebody that you love. You know, when in cases like these, you know, when a country is attacked and Israel was attacked on on Saturday, um, I think they've sustained over a thousand casualties so far. Um, When there's a group that is attacking, then you do have the right to attack back. Um, Now, the question, though, is, is the extent of the counterattack making it more on the same level as Hamas or is it not? There is also the reality that Israel wouldn't be launching this full on offensive if they weren't attacked in the first place. And I'm not even getting into all the, the history of this conflict. You know, that's that's kind of it's part of the discussion, but it's kind of separate. But in this case, I, I at least as far as it's gone right now, I don't see that that it, the, the the use of violence is equal here. I, I think that what Hamas did really warranted a response. So, but again, as time goes on, Israel might go ahead and go overboard. This happened in the past before. And that's what I'm the most worried about when it comes to this conflict is because the whole innocent lives thing, children, civilians, people who are not soldiers, just people on quote unquote, both sides, Palestinians and Israelis who are just living their life, minding their business are getting involved in this war. And that's the part that's really unfortunate. If you wanted to retaliate against the Hamas attacks, it may have taken longer, but with the resources and the money that Israel has, they could have found those soldiers and took them out. They could have got rid of that whole fleet of soldiers one by one, and they could have got their redemption that way. So what I'm fearful of is they're going to, oh, you took some of our innocent lives. We're going to take innocent lives. And that tit for tat method of war seems like 
there it's not a productive way to resolve anything and, and like you said the initial conflict has years and decades of history behind it and we're getting further and further and further away from a resolution if we keep just killing innocent people with no regard and no plan to change this sustain um, any sort of peace in the region that's completely gone at this moment and it's kind of like we're obliterating a road forward altogether yeah, those are all really excellent comments. I've been struggling with this quite a lot, not for the reason that you describe, Andrew. I mean, I think the killing of innocents on either side is obviously reprehensible, but I've sort of been trying to come back. Not, I wouldn't even call it first principles or the history, but I keep saying to myself, where are the shorthand? I was like, where are the adults in the room? But it's really where are the people who are acting to be responsible for the citizens that they allegedly represent? So there have been plenty of articles sort of saying, Benjamin Netanyahu and the right wing government and the um, settler policies of Israel set up a combustible environment. And now we're experiencing the results of that. There are folks who are obviously blaming Hamas. Uh, but it strikes me that it's in everyone's long term interest, as we know, to establish some sort of peaceful resolution. And yet none of the leadership, I think, on either side is actually really interested in that. It seems to me that the Netanyahu government is actually interested in there not being a two-state solution. As he said, uh, during his prime ministership, there would be no two-state solution. And so that killed any hope for peace. And simultaneously, Hamas is publicly on the record um, committed to the destruction of the state of Israel. And so uh, we have leadership on both sides that actually doesn't want to protect human life, because if those are the positions that they've decided to take, it seems to me impossible that we'll have a conflict free zone. But now that we're in the midst of the conflict and asking about the conduct of the war, maybe this doubles down on the point. I don't expect them to be responsible in that either because of what they've shown with regard to their policies pre-war. So it's a really desperate situation for all involved. It's horrifying to see um, innocents being murdered on all sides. Uh, Gazans do not equal Hamas in the same way that the Israeli government does not equal the Israeli people and the folks who are just trying to live their lives. Um, but they're very much, you know, war is hell and they're definitely in it. Yeah, I, I would say that, uh, you know, like every situation, there's uh, there's always opportunity for anybody to have done better. Right. Um, you know, and there's but at the same time, the Israelis have been struggling with how to have a you know, a successful outcome that doesn't put their people at risk of dying on any given moment uh, for any long term period. You know, the, they managed to succeed with Jordan. You know, um, they when I when I took a trip to um, Israel, they taught us some of the history of that. And, they, you know, they they helped the Jordanians learn agriculture and irrigation and taught them how to use technology better to produce more outcomes for their country. And as a you know, blessing their enemies, so to speak, made friends out of them. That has not worked, you know, with obviously the, the Palestinians on the West Bank to some degree and certainly not with uh, the Gazans and certainly not with Hamas. Um, but that's what I think most Israelis would prefer is can we have a peaceful outcome here where we can coexist? But time and time again, that just hasn't been available. What I come back to and kind of something that you said, Rakeem, is um, you can see how there's an explanation that somebody, if you were asking the leaders of Hamas, you know, sort of what would their explanation be? They're going to give you an explanation. But even if you grant all of their arguments, even if you say the the settlement policies were wrong, and even if you say the, uh, you know, the, the walling off is wrong or the depriving of trade, if, even if you say all of that, you still never get to a place where you can justify 
And again, I hate to say it, I don't mean to indulge in the gruesomeness of it, but you don't ever get to a place where it's okay to rape women, kidnap the elderly and behead children. That's never, ever allowed and certainly not allowed as a strategy, totally separate from the question of whether awful things might happen to children as a result of legitimate discrimination of targets that, you know, you can't avoid. And that's the problem is they engage in the act of the atrocity on purpose is part of the key disqualifier to me. Well, and even add on to that, Andrew, I mean, the the bottom line is that like the policies that you mentioned, the settlements, the walling off, even if Israel were to stop those things, Hamas's charter says that they want to eliminate Israel. Now, again, I'm not talking about the Palestinians, all of them. I'm talking specifically about Hamas. That's in their charter. So even if Israel stopped doing all of that stuff, Hamas would continue to do what it's doing. And I think that goes back to Rakim's point, which I'm glad you brought up, Rakim, that there are elements on both sides of this equation and even outside of it there. I mean, I've been telling my audience and people for some reason, people don't really want to get this because they just want to go with one side or the other. But there are elements, geopolitical forces that are deeply invested in going and, and, you know, in Hamas's case, I mean, they're, they're, they want this keep, to keep going because they think that at some point they're going to eliminate Israel or it helps them stay in power in the Gaza Strip because they tell the people, hey, we're actually representing you and we're helping you. But even on the Israeli side, I mean, Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated because he wanted to enter into the Oslo Accords. And who assassinated him? It was an extremist Jew. Egypt, when Anwar Sadat was entering into a peace agreement with Israel, he was assassinated by a Muslim in his own country. There are forces that don't want peace because in one way or the other, they profit off of it. And who actually suffers? It's the Israeli people. It's the Palestinians, which if you would ask 90 percent of them what they want, they would both say, I just want to be left alone and live my life. That's it. Yeah. Such good points. And that's the main thing. Such good points. It's the leadership, like the 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 how they're trying to go about any of this doesn't resolve anything. And I think that's probably the most destructive part of all of this. It's just exactly what you said. The civilians don't really want to be engaged in this at all. And this really could be resolved if the people in charge, particularly the leaders of Israel and the, the people who are leading on the Palestinian side, if they could come to some sort of agreement. But like you're saying, They don't want to. And when I'm thinking about Israel, I'm just thinking about how much money they get and resources and all of this money that's poured into the country for their defense and for their military and all of that. That's if you get rid of this conflict, what is the justification for continuing to fund Israel like that? Like you really won't have a justification. So just to your point, Jeff, there's reasons why this has taken so long to be resolved. There's reasons why certain allies are continuing to be involved in it because there's money in it. The military industrial complex is a big thing and people want to get their money. You know, one of the things in um, in just worth theory, one of the principles is uh, violence is only justified when implemented by a legitimate state actor. You know, states have authority derived and of course, our theory is from the uh, consent of the government. Right. right? And, uh, you know, you give up the right to engage in violence yourself, except in imminent self-defense or defense of others in in the interest of uh, taking away the ability of anybody to engage in violence other than the state. And so the state is representing the political authority can engage in violence on your behalf. Right. And uh, not aggressive violence. There's still rules about that, but only the state. And the challenge, I think, in part in thinking about Hamas is you guys are both saying uh, all saying is. Hamas doesn't represent all of Gaza. Hamas, you know, they elected him, what, 2006, I think, is when that took place. And there's not been an election since. 
And, you know, how many of the residents of the Gaza Strip really identify with the leadership or the organization? How many of them would vote otherwise? And can you really blame them, obviously, for what a government they may not want is doing on their behalf? Also, should you treat it as a state? I mean, is Gaza, is it a state? Is Hamas a state actor? Typically, we say, no, they're terrorists, but they do have political authority of some kind going back to this election. So warfare against a state weirdly makes sense almost. uh, But whereas if you're going against, I don't know, Al Qaeda in Afghanistan, you're not going against Afghanistan at the time. You're going against Al Qaeda, uh, a rogue actor within uh, legitimate authority. I mean, at this point, Hamas is a state actor because they are the government of Gaza. I know Gaza is not a country per se, but they are a governing authority that they were, you know, quote unquote elected. I mean, as far as that goes, I'm not sure how legitimate those elections were, but they are the ones in power. They are the government. And that's and and you illustrated it beautifully, Andrew, about how the state has basically a monopoly on violence. We give them this 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 authority to use violence on our behalf. But how do they always use it? I know I'm going on an anti-government rant, but it's 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 applicable in this case. I mean, the ones who are invested in keeping this going are governments and, you know, maybe Raytheon and some other (laughs) corporations. But still, I mean, these are not these entities are not representing the people that they say they represent. There is a disconnect here. You know, Andrew, I was um, I appreciate the framing of just war theory, but I wonder if it leads us astray, if only in the sense that it doesn't just feel like a pre-modern conflict. I mean, doesn't this just feel like um, Romans versus Carthage or something like when somebody's done, they intend to salt the earth to ensure that their enemies like never rise again. I mean, that's what I mean by the prosecution of the attacks on both sides. Clearly Hamas is act is using terrorist activities. And the only possible justification I think someone could approach is if Hamas demonstrated any restraint whatsoever, but they don't intend to demonstrate any restraint because they fundamentally um, are uh, embarrassed and feel totally belittled by the situation. Um, feel that it's unjust, obviously, uh, and so intend to act out all of those insecurities and that feeling of smallness on the weakest possible people in the Israeli population and will do so indiscriminately. Um, so that for me, the, the problem is that all of our analytical tools for thinking about warfare in the context of this conflict don't serve us other than to drive us potentially into corners, which is to say there's nothing that Hamas could do that was possibly right. I'm not sure that Hamas isn't representative of the Palestinians who live in the Gaza Strip. I know there haven't been elections, but I just don't know. Um, yeah, that's fair. I don't see, yeah, I don't see large scale uprisings, but who knows what the conditions are. Right. So I've been to Israel twice in my life. So I'm not totally ignorant of the situation and been into the West Bank. Uh, but I still feel as though we're dealing with something that's so primordial, actually, in this conflict and people's understandings of it that are so still so fresh. I mean, you know, the 40s are not that far away. This is still in the lived memory of a lot of the people who even if half the population is um, our children and the Gaza Strip is still in the lived memory of some of the folks who lived there, what happened then, um, the Nekba, as they call it. And so um, I don't know. I'm I'm desperate for new solutions, new ways of talking about it. What probably makes me feel most despondent is to hear things that I heard when I was, you know, 15 or I was thinking about the last Intifada, which I, I was probably 15 or 16. It sounds exactly the same. The same people yeah. are using the same talking points about the nature of the conflict and who's to blame and why we're existing in this circumstance. And to all of your points and to my points, all the people who get hurt are innocents who really just want to live a decent life, you know? 
You know what's terrifying to me about this? I mean, especially since you brought this up, Rakeem, like the whole salt the earth philosophy, just seeing how some people, especially on the right, are reacting to this. Like I'm seeing people and I'm talking about regular people and influencers saying things like they need to turn Gaza into a parking lot or turn the whole thing in, in, into glass. I'm like, so basically you are Hamas. I mean, you are advocating for the same thing that Hamas wants to do to Israel. And they think and they really do think that this is OK to, to just wipe out a, a whole people yes. because. Hamas has done and they use all these justifications. Well, most of them agree with Hamas, most of them or well, you don't know that. I mean, the thing is, I know a lot of Palestinians agree with Hamas, but a lot don't. So to me, just the fact that this, there's something about the Israel Arab Palestinian conflict that brings that out in people. I don't see that with like Ukraine and Russia or in any other military conflict. I, I don't really understand it. It's very strange because I've been seeing the same stuff that you're describing. And it's so weird to me because regardless, so are we now of the mind, if somebody disagrees with you or stands on the opposite opposing side of you politically, then you can just commit a genocide against them. Is that what we're saying? Because that's not okay either. Even if they agree, let's say, because we don't know what kind of conditions are going on over there, but let's say that they quote unquote ideologically agree. Are they in the, are they soldiers? Are they warriors? What grounds do we have to kill them just because they may agree with a, a ideology that it's opposing to the ideology that you support? So that's a very dangerous route. And it's very weird to me, particularly just with the history of all of this. Let's talk about World War II history on top of the history of this um, conflict that that mindset is prominent because it's like, come on now. We just seen what happened in the World War II. We're not going to start doing that same thing again now, are we? Yeah, the existential threat problem, right? The anti-Semitism, the Holocaust carried forward. I mean, you don't go go anywhere you want in history, right? Uh, You know, Herod tried to kill the babies of the Jews. You know, Pharaoh tried to kill the Jewish babies. Uh, Hitler had a different solution, but he was killing everybody he could kill, right? You know, the the anti-Semitism is not new. And you do see it rampant uh, throughout the Middle East, but not everywhere. And I don't know. One of the things I when I'm talking about this on the radio, I'm always saying, look, you do have to distinguish between the ones who have bought into this kind of uh, annihilation, murder, suicide cult of, you know, overthrowing the Jews and establishing the caliphate, you know, most Middle Easterners are just the ones I've known have been fabulous people, you know, charitable, generous, lovely, intelligent, beautiful people. And then there were some, you know, and so kind of to what you were saying, Jeff, no, you, you can't wipe out an entire population even if half of that population is a threat to you, the other half is civilian or innocent or their lives matter to be protected. And anybody if, if somebody actually says out loud what Israel should do is just, you know, turn Gaza into glass. They don't understand just war theory. either. They don't understand restraint and discrimination of targets and proportionality of response and that the goal of war. The goal of war is never to make you feel good about having gotten yours. The goal of war is to produce peace, to restore a status quo in which only the state is engaging in violence under limited circumstances against people who engage in violence. Like that's the goal. And so, you know, terrorism violates that goal because it makes it impossible to establish peace. And absolute annihilation is obviously not trying to establish peace and order. You're just getting revenge, which can't be justified. Even Benjamin Netanyahu was on Twitter, y'all, tweeting video of bombing Gaza, like just film, like, look what I did. That's not okay. What does that do to further this conflict in any positive direction at all? Absolutely nothing. 
Yeah, I mean, and Hezbollah did that, too, because Hezbollah is also attacking Israel, and they posted a video of them launching a, a, an anti-tank strike against a military outpost that killed three people. And th- that just it just goes back to what we've been saying. Like, there are people who want this thing to continue. And to me, it's like, you know, like people who want to just salt the earth, it's like they, they're in their emotions. I mean, it's like 9-11, right? Now, are there things that America did in the Middle East that we shouldn't have been doing that led to that? Yes, does that make it okay for them to kill those 3,000 people? Do they, do they deserve to die for what our government did? No. And we were right to hunt down the people who did it. But it's like it's like they don't apply the same logic to us or to other countries. For, for some reason, it's just something about this conflict that brings that out in people. The thing that um, that I keep coming back to when I when I think about this is, and I, I actually really appreciate what Rakeem said, that I wish we had a newer way to talk about it. You know, I, nish, I wish we had something that felt like it was going to be more productive because he's right. The things that are being said and have been said have been said before, you know, many times, but I still, I just kind of fundamentally and viscerally, I look at what they did to the innocent civilians at the music festival, what they did to the innocent civilians in the, at the farm, at the kibbutz. And I think that was an intentional atrocity uh, for the Israelis, at least most of the time, and I certainly believe and hope this is true, because I know they have the roof knock policy where they warn the building, your building is about to get blown up, get out. You know, they do that to avoid civilian casualties. For them, killing civilians is a, uh, of, if you can avoid it, do so, but it is, you know, only something is collateral. It's not an intentional, you know, uh, t- a tactic, essentially, of the warfare. And so whereas the one side does these things on purpose, the other side is really trying to avoid them. And to me, that's that restraint Rakim was talking about. That's something in the direction of we're not just here for destroying our enemies and laying waste. There's something about that that shows civilization, shows morality, decency, really, even if not everything they've done is correct. We certainly can agree about that. I totally think that's right. I mean, certainly in terms of the prosecution so far as we've seen it, one thing I try to keep in mind is that an inferior force that routinely is defeated by, you know, another group that has superior forces is going to engage eventually in tactics like terrorism. I mean, as I'm saying it's moral, I'm just saying we can see that that will be the natural trajectory because at some point, if you could imagine it, if you and your, the authorized soldiers all go out and get killed, by the superior force, someone's going to be upset about that and think this isn't really the way to prosecute this war. How is it that we could possibly win? And they're going to result to tactics that, again, I think become primordial that fall outside of just war theory or anything um, sort of modern that we've used to try to place guardrails on warfare. Uh, And so, you know, as I said, I I know we all view this as a tragic and, um, unnecessary circumstance, but it will repeat itself over and over and over again until the Palestinians have something resembling a state. Yeah. And it's, you know, and and it is, it's hard to see good outcomes. It's hard to see innovation in the direction of forgiveness. Uh, You know, it's, it's, it's hard to envision anything good coming about. Um, Even as we watch whatever else you might say, the, uh, the Palestinian six-year-old in the Gaza Strip does not deserve to die, and the Israeli six-year-old in the uh, the farm does not deserve to die. And, you know, how can we make that happen less? You know, how can we uh, create the conditions of justice? How can we... Is there anything that can be done to foster, you know, peace, justice, order, prosperity, the kinds of things that civilization is supposed to work towards? You know, how can we make that happen? Yeah. 
What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. All right, all right, all right. So we are back again (laughs) to this standard conversation that we seem to be having in our generation that uh, college campuses are not spaces for free speech, that wokeness has overtaken our universities um, and our institutions of higher learning. Uh, And so much so that recently there was a study that said that Harvard was the least free university in terms of um, ideological opinion and freedom of thought. Uh, And the person who wrote the article that we all shared with one another said that they were a strong social scientist. I don't question that. And they went ahead and looked at the analysis and said, "Mm, it's not unreasonable. But so let's just to put that aside, whether or not Harvard is the worst, let's just put them in the bottom half of all educational institutions, (laughs) all educational institutions in the United States. Um, And I wanted to bring this to the group because I still have a relatively frequent contact with college campuses and I see the media reports, but it just doesn't feel true to me that universities are not permitting free speech. Now, maybe that has to be redefined in some way. So are people allowed to sort of spout off unadulterated nonsense whenever they want, as they would um, maybe outside of the university? No, but that wasn't the case when I was there before we were having these debates and hopefully will never be the case. Um, are they more likely to be shouted down uh, when they're expressing an unpopular opinion than they had been in some prior period? Maybe that's true, though. I didn't live through the anti-war period where I suspect many more people were shouted down quite more frequently. And I don't know that that was called an anti-speech um, era, but maybe it was. But I guess I'm just struggling with this. And you all, we have really different opinions about these things. And so I wanted to kind of see where you were, because it seems to me that a student who goes to Harvard, who um, has been entrusted with this excellent educational opportunity, should go there feeling full of themselves and seeking to learn and be disabused of things that are true, while also having the opportunity to secure themselves in things that they believe to be true. And I think that that essential mission is still being guarded at Harvard and other elite liberal universities um, as well. But maybe I'm maybe I'm missing something. When I think of free speech under attack, I feel like we use that term a little too loosely. So let's talk about what does it mean to have your free speech violated? Having your free speech violated, meaning some sort of institution of the government or you got arrested or something happened to you because you spoke your mind. That is having your free speech violated. Having your free speech violated is not somebody 
heckling you. It's not somebody laughing at what you had to say. It's not somebody offering their opinion. It's not somebody debating you. It's not somebody offering an opposing opinion. It's not somebody making you feel uncomfortable about expressing your opinion. None of that is a violation of your free speech. Free speech goes both ways. And if you say something that someone doesn't agree with, the other person has the opportunity to rebuttal that, to argue with you, to, you know, throw ice cream at you, whatever it is, they get to do that. Maybe not throw ice cream, but whatever it is, they get to express themselves and oppose you if that's what they want to do. And I don't know if people are getting more sensitive or if certain opinions um, that people hold are just getting more publicly unpopular. So they personally feel uncomfortable to express themselves in different ways. And that's a you problem, babe. Um, but yeah, that's really my opinion on it. There's this, there's, you're not getting arrested for speaking your mind on college campuses. That's not happening. If it is happening, somebody let me know, but I don't think that's the case. So, uh, I disagree with your view just a little bit, Imani. Um, here's where, uh, I would agree with you that what people are talking about happening on campus is typically not what we would say constitutional rights violations, right? It's not government imposed restraint on speech or association, but even if something doesn't qualify as a violation of your constitutional rights, it can still run contrary to the goal of higher education, the goal of civil discourse and encountering in a civil manner ideas you disagree with. And so where um, if somebody is speaking at a forum and they're the invited speaker or even the panelists and somebody's heckling them from the audience, their speech isn't being violated, but we should engage and question and discord and then listen. And disagree if we must disagree, you know, and maybe throw ice cream once in a while. But uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, even though it's not a violation of their rights, it's still a violation of the idea of higher education, I, I would say. You know, I think what you're speaking to there, Andrew, is, you know, we have the First Amendment, right? And we have the letter of the law. And, and Rakim, you can correct me on because you're the you're the legal guy here. But you got the letter of the law, which says that the government can't stop you from saying what you want to say, basically. But then you have also have the spirit of the law. And that spirit is saying People should be allowed to express their ideas. And if you disagree with them, you use your speech to counter that. You don't look for ways to punish people because they're saying things that you don't like. So you may not be violating their constitutional rights, but I think people who are arguing about the the, the speech here are arguing that you're violating the, the spirit of the law, like Mia Khalifa. Uh, uh, like, I guess she's a former porn star who said some stuff critical of Israel and people were calling on her to be fired. And people were talking about cancel culture, this cancel culture, that. And to me, you know, that that's tricky because I, I do. I think that we should be trying to get somebody, somebody to lose their job for expressing a point of view that you don't agree with. No, at the same time, the whatever whoever she works for has freedom of association too. So if they don't want to associate with that, they have the freedom to do that as well. Now, as far as like on campus, I mean, when I'm t- when we're talking about people shouting other people down so that they can't speak or pulling fire alarms or, or hassling people. Yeah, that, that that's wrong. And now is that happening at every college campus? Probably not. I think it is happening at more than it should be. And that should be addressed. And I'm not sure what went into the score for Harvard, but I mean, if you're basically threatening people's jobs, like professors who get fired for talking about controversial topics, I think that I, I think there's something wrong there. And I think that that's a little scary because of where it could lead to. Yeah, there's definitely a limit. I hear what y'all are saying. Well, I guess I uh, I do. Definitely. There's definitely a limit. And, you know, maybe we want to distinguish between sort of free speech and academic freedom because college campuses are supposed to promote a certain kind of debate and discourse. But one of the things that's striking to me in all of these conversations is I never hear people who allege that places like Harvard or any liberal institution have become uh, un 
friendly to unpopular ideas, pulling out grades and saying, here's a conservative student who wrote a paper with an unpopular idea and the professor marked them down. I mean, it seems to me that most of us went to college in one way or another to be educated by not one another, though that was fun, but by the (laughs) faculty, right? It was, yes, the diversity of opinion among the student body, but the faculty is ultimately responsible for cultivating that environment of academic freedom. And I never see that anyone has been uh, penalized, is the word I'm looking for. I've never seen that anyone's been penalized because they've expressed an unpopular conservative opinion in the most liberal of courses. Uh, And if that were happening, then maybe I would feel much more sympathetic because I would say, actually, you are stifling someone's ability to work through an idea. To reach a conclusion, it might be an unpopular conclusion. It may even be a wrong conclusion, but that's part of the academic process, which is to reveal yourself and your thinking through your writing and with support from um, well-researched sources, et cetera. The kind of incidents we point out where a speaker is invited to campus to provide an opinion might be relatively important, but actually constitutes a small fraction of the experience of most students on campus. I can name probably on one hand the number of speakers I remember who came to campus during my four years in undergrad. And I mean, maybe on both hands, if I take four years of undergrad, grad school, all the degrees that I have, like it's like nine or 10 years worth of school. And I'm like, there are 10 people I remember. What I do remember oftentimes are the classroom discussions that I had, the papers that I wrote. And those are never the places that are cited as being inhospitable to contrary views. Yeah, I remember arguing people a lot in college and it was part of the fun. It was the spirit. No, you come on. Stop in class, in class, because the the debate part was my favorite part. Like when you would talk about a topic and they would just open it up and you would just go raise your hand and you're just going back and forth with people. And I don't recall any of my professors stopping us. You know, we that's probably the where we were able to learn the most and just develop our own ideas, hear other points of view. The most was like and Rakeem in the classroom during debates and discussions. So, yeah, if they were stopping that, then I would have a huge problem with that because I feel like I met so many people and I saw their minds change or I was influenced by people's ideas. Like it's good hearing people's perspectives. Um, in that type of environment, especially in the educational environment, because the whole point is to learn something from the interaction. So, yeah, I have read news stories about uh, conservative students getting graded lower because they express a conservative opinion. I have I've have read a bunch of those over the years. Now, I haven't read a, a ton of them. I don't think it's as widespread as some people might say, but I do think it is happening. And I think a lot of it is that people I mean, because I've seen surveys uh, probably from the same organization that that ranked uh, Harvard so low that where conservative students say that they're more afraid of expressing their views because they might get cracked down on by the professor or by their or by their their, their fellow students or get ostracized and things like that, which kind of I mean, if, if you're a more left wing person and let's say you're going to a more conservative university, you might feel that, too, because your views are not in the majority. So it doesn't necessarily automatically mean that these colleges are cracking down on, on speech, it just might be most people in that room don't agree with you and they're going to they're going to say it. Um, but I, I think that also there is a culture and I think it's growing where people feel like they need to punish other people for saying things that they don't like. And that's what I'm more afraid of, because that can easily lead to, well, yeah, we can get you fired. But guess what? Maybe we revamp the First Amendment and be, to, to the point to where we can use the government to stop you from saying what you want to say. And that's what I'm more afraid of. 
Yeah, what Amani, uh, you were saying, uh, yeah, I agree with you and Jeff too, the idea that sometimes the perception that what I'm about to say in a classroom is going to be unpopular, you might feel that and that might you know make you apprehensive about speaking. And that's not the same as censorship. That's not the same as, you know, even hindering academic freedom. That's fear. I mean, that's, you know, courage and cowardice and these things are, you know, you need to learn how to stand up for yourself. But I agree with you, Jeff, that um there's this longstanding idea of, you know, though I despise what you're what you say, I would fight to the death to protect your right to say it. And that has changed. It's no longer stand up for what you believe. It's stand up for what you believe if it's the right thing. And uh, though I despise what you're going to say or have said, I will actively fight to stop you from saying it anymore because I despise. And that's a huge shift in the ideological culture is that idea of uh, actively suppressing or punishing people for what they've said. To your point, Rakeem, about how often it happens. As a person who believes that the uh, university settings are largely captured by the left, and this frustrates me terribly, I agree with you. Uh, conservatives tend to over-exaggerate it. It's, it's not as bad as the few examples that are given would tend to portray, uh, but those examples are captivating. Nevertheless, it does happen. Uh, you know, I taught for 10 years, taught philosophy for 10 years. And um, I will tell you that uh, I was very clear about my own beliefs as a way of telling the students Hey, if you don't want to be in a classroom that's taught by a conservative Christian and all this, um, then feel free to go to another class. But I'll tell you, you don't have to agree with me. I will never punish you for disagreeing with me. Just do good work. That's all. I, but I don't want to hide my biases from you. But I got fired a lot <laughs> because, you know, I always thought, hey, there's communists in our department. There's Wiccans in our department. There's atheists in our department. I'm a Christian Not conservative. Wiccan. I think, you know, on the uh, the island of misfit philosophers, I'm a good fit. And those students loved the coursework and loved the questions and the challenges that it brought. You know, I was the adjunct that didn't get asked back, you know, frequently. And uh, so, no, um, suppression of particularly conservative and Christian ideas on campus, at least at the faculty level, uh, happens. I mean, that's a real thing. Yeah. Oh, I know many, many, many non-Christian, liberal, anything else teachers who would be uh, abhorred at that. They would work to create academic freedom in their classroom. They're not the all. They might be the many, but there are a very effective some who do suppress those viewpoints at many campuses, in my opinion, based on experience. Mm -hmm. I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, it, it just always perplexes me. I'm I'm quite sure you're represent or you experienced it, and I'm sure it happened just the way you say it. It's always perplexing to me though because I don't understand how we could expect anyone to grow or evolve in their thinking absent being able to freely articulate their thinking. Absolutely, right? <laughs> so, I was like, I feel quite confident in a lot of the things that I think, but I can't possibly be right about everything, and so the only possible way to be corrected is to state the incorrect thing. I mean, that was all of grade school, all of high school. It was to take an examination and write down what you think, and let's just put it on questions of actual fact, and to have someone then say, no, that's incorrect. <laughs> and here's how you would know that that was incorrect. And so to have, again, I always reframe these debates as, are the adults in charge of the insane asylum, right? Like you've got hormonal teenagers and early 20-somethings running around a campus trying to figure out who they are. To my mind, I expect combustions of one kind or another, right? This is just the nature of the thing. But 
if the faculty and the administration reach a place where they can't tolerate disagreement, they don't seem to understand that the process of education is revelatory, um, requiring you to reveal and then to have something revealed to you, then yeah, the project would be lost. I just haven't myself experienced that in the institutions that I've encountered. More often than not, people are willing to have a hearty debate. Sometimes they uh, look askance at you and think badly of you because you express something, but the expression was permitted. I think that's probably the case in most in most situations. I think most people are okay with hearing ideas that they don't like. And I think this was is one of those things where it's more of a fringe minority who really does want to censor people and they don't view academic institutions as places where you can grow your thinking and be exposed to new ideas. They just want to to basically teach people how to or what to think. My fear is that we'll grow from the fringe into more mainstream. I mean, it, it's happened on the right, too. I think the same organization, the Foundation for uh, Individual Rights and Expression, and I think that was the the one that labeled Harvard as the lowest for free speech, but they go after the right, too. There was a guy in, in a college in West Texas that banned a drag, a drag show performance because it didn't line up with his values, and he freely admitted that he knew he was violating the Constitution. And he did it anyway. So that's more my worry. I mean, people who think that they should be able to make these decisions for you about what you say and what you don't say. I'm, I'm worried about them becoming more mainstream on wh- whichever side they're on. There's also a problem where um, uh, and this is human nature, that if you happen to be conservative, you are captivated by the stories of suppression of conservative ideas on campus. And if you are uh, an atheist or a communist, uh, you know, uh, or a liberal, these are all, of course, very different categories. Um, you're captivated by the stories of your points of view being suppressed uh, in the culture or in, you know, a workplace or on campus. And uh, so the real challenge is, you know, do I uh, stand up for the atheist? And does the atheist stand up for me? Which is kind of going back to that old, you know, though I despise what you say, I would fight to the death for your right to say it. And as Rakeem said, I mean, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to come into an environment where I'm not just allowed, but actually expected to articulate my ideas and give the best robust advocacy for them. And then to find out that they're not quite as robust as I thought. (laughs) And that's how you learn. And, you know, it's that exchange where you're able to make some mistakes and able to experiment with ideas and try some on for a little while, even as a, just a trial period that produces a kind of wisdom and familiarity that produ- that gets better results. Even if you don't change your answers, your answers are better answers, even if they're the same answers. Yeah, I think we're just experiencing more like tribalism right now when it comes to having certain opinions. And there's just no space for nuance in any of these conversations anymore, which really makes it difficult to have productive conversations. And that's something that I think is why we're seeing this trend kind of increase in people's inability to hear and just give space to opposing opinions because they attach their whole identity to their opinion. And if you say, hey, agree with this, 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 but that part can use some work. It's like they feel like you just spit in their face and it's mm-hmm. just there's no room for even having those type of discussions. And I think that's the most unfortunate part of all, all of this. You know, Rakeem, I want to say my kids, you know, I want them to grow up to think like I do well, to think for themselves. But hopefully they wind up thinking for themselves like I do. Right. That's the goal of every parent. But I would a thousand times again and again, put my kids in your classroom, then in the classroom of some happens to be conservative, happens to be Christian, let's say um, uh, somebody who does not believe in free thought, free inquiry, open discussion and robust conflict of ideas. 
because uh, the totalitarian impulse in him, though it tends to come to my same kinds of answers, is terrifying and horrifying to me. And I want the open debate and discussion and inquiry that I know your classroom would have. That would be much more healthy for my kids. Well, I, pre- I appreciate that. I don't ever intend to teach, but that's that's a very. <laughs> that's I'm trying to talk you into it. You know? Come on, well, you know, but maybe the last or my last point, at least, it connects to what Amani was saying and what you were saying, which is this tribalism, totalitarianism, the, the threats. I mean, the more fact and opinion find themselves in opposite corners, I think the more we see these heightened reactions around speech. And to me, that's actually what we're what we should be focused on, which is, are we inviting people to campuses now who don't just have controversial opinions, but who have controversial opinions anchored in fact (laughs) of one sort or another? I don't know why anybody should be submitted to someone who just comes on and spouts off an opinion. And then if you look at their syllabus, you realize it's quite thin or rather relies on unreliable sources to begin with. But my hope is that what we're cultivating among this generation of students, as with all generations of students, is the ability to listen to an argument and then to evaluate it and then to respond with that evaluation in hand, hopefully forever tossing bad arguments into a dustbin to never return or to themselves again be transformed by what it is they've learned in the process of doing that. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, so let me tell you guys a story about an article that I came across. And this is a story of a teenage girl. Uh, she's 17 now. Um, she is a sexual abuse survivor. She was abused by this person. Uh, I don't have all the details, but she was sexually abused and she filed a civil lawsuit against her abuser who ended up going to jail. He was convicted. I think he may have even confessed to it. And she obviously won a settlement about $69,000, but she's not going to see a cent of that. Why? Because law enforcement, when they were investigating this guy, also found that he had some drug paraphernalia, some narcotics, what have you, and they use that as a pretext to steal his money and steal really to steal her money through civil asset forfeiture. And that's what I want to talk about. Civil asset forfeiture. I think it's one of the most egregious examples of tyranny that most people don't really know about. And there are a lot of different ways that it it affects innocent people. Uh, Civil asset forfeiture, just for those who don't know, it basically allows law enforcement to take property or money like your home or your house, car, cash. If they believe, if they just believe that it's been used to commit a crime. Now, mind you, you don't have to even be charged or convicted 
for them to take your property. There is no due process here. And they use that to fill their coffers or they need to give it to the government or what have you. Um, there's a lot more uh, uh, complexities with this. But at the end of the day, that's really what it is. Some states have passed laws reforming that practice. But basically, yes, law enforcement can take your stuff. And it is very hard for you to get it back. You have to navigate a complex legal, legal system. You have to hire an attorney. And in most cases, you're not going to be able to get it back because you're not even going to be able to afford to pay legal fees to do this. So this is just one of many, 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 many stories that I've seen about law enforcement using civil asset forfeiture to commit theft, to, to steal from people and abuse them. I want to get you guys' thoughts on this. I mean, do you guys know about civil asset forfeiture or what have you what has your experience been with with learning about this topic? I watched a documentary on this or maybe I think it was the episode of like the late night last week tonight show or something like that. A few years ago, they did like a 30 minute episode on it. And it's actually absurd. <laughs> like when I was watching the episode, I was blown away. Like they were taking people's watches, cars, just cash out their wallet, like straight up sticking people up and stealing their property, their money, all type of stuff. And they're using it as, quote, evidence. Um, that they never have to put anywhere. And a lot of them were just using this stuff to live off of riding around in other people's cars. It was really crazy. And it's one of those loopholes or one of those intended flaws in the system. I don't know what, but whatever law there is for the police to be able to do this needs to be seriously looked at because yeah, it's absolutely appalling. And I don't really see the benefit that it has to civilians for you to even be able to do this without even proving that I committed a crime. Yeah, let, let's start with basic principles, you know, shall not be deprived of life, liberty or property without due process of law. I mean, that's a fairly easy phrase to understand. And so uh, civil asset forfeiture without a conviction is deeply troubling to anybody who believes in the Constitution, and the right to, you know, to trial and uh, being innocent until you're proven guilty. Um, on the other hand, I, I know a lot of cops hang out with a lot of cops and sheriffs and all that talk to them all the time. And I know that uh, civil forfeiture laws are an incredibly useful tool for them combating particularly, you know, drug crime um, because there's a lot of money. Okay. And uh, the cost of, you know, prosecuting is difficult. Um, the money in our state in Florida, you have the law enforcement trust fund is what it's called and uh, civil forfeiture through the law enforcement trust fund then has to get basically approved by the local legislative body. And it has to be spent in very particular ways. Like you can't, I mean, Putting aside the uh, John Oliver examples that uh, may well happen and are certainly, you know, great fodder for expose TV. How rampant is that problem? I don't know, but that's certainly not within the law. Right. Even the law, as Jeff is opposing, it doesn't allow you to take somebody's watch and drive their Ferrari around for fun if you're a cop. Um, but if you take the money or the car and you let's say you sell that and get proceeds from it. Well, that can then get used for, you know, um, uh, programs to help teens or, uh, you know, a social services charity or uh, community building. Uh, there are all kinds of ways this money gets used to do good sort of locally to avert crime and to kind of build people better so that you don't have as many criminals in the end on the, you know, on the streets. It's kind of the at least the theory behind it. But of course, uh, the abuses are problematic. And if it can be done without a conviction, that's deeply offensive to the Constitution, in my opinion. And in a lot of cases, it is, Andrew, that that's why they that they call they have a name for it. It's called policing for profit. And in a lot of cases, this this does happen. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, let me ask you a question. If, uh, for instance, the police were investigating a crime, it sounds like the beginning of Law and Order, right? OK, so police are investigating a crime and, ding, ding. Yeah, ding, ding, and um, they 
have sufficient evidence that they go to a judge and much like obtaining a warrant, say, we believe we need to seize these particular assets because they are part of the commission of a crime. Now, they haven't yet gotten a conviction, but they at least have engaged in a process that suggests, hey, there's enough here um, for us to seize the asset. Does that trouble you because it's still pre-conviction or is it sort of a lack of process piece? Well, it's really both. I mean, because like, like say if there's somebody, somebody's uh, suspected of murder and they find a murder weapon. That's one thing. I mean, that, that that's different. But if they think, oh, I think this guy was selling weed and he had a thousand dollars, we're just going to take that. And, and we're going to assume that it was used in a crime, whether we have evidence or not. That bothers me, especially without a conviction. Because, well, realistically, I don't think people should be going to jail for, for weed anyway. But let's just say I believe that. The fact is, is that they can take your property, your home, car or money, and they can keep it. Even Like, let's say they even charge you and you don't get convicted. They can still keep it in a lot of states. Now, some states have laws that have reformed this, but in a lot of states, they can keep it. And you have to go through an entire legal process to get your property back. No, that makes sense. That makes sense to me. I think what I'm trying to interrogate is, are these just process flaws for you or a kind of fundamental objection to pre-conviction? So let's just say. Right. In Rakim State, um, in order to seize property from uh, a potential um, maldoer, is that a word? Maldoer. So <laughs> we'll allow it. <laughs> it probably wouldn't make wouldn't make the final edit for law and order. But go ahead. Yeah, that's good. That's good. OK, so before you seize it, you have to go before a judge, present your evidence. Um, and if, in fact, you do not obtain a conviction within you know three months from the seizure, it has to be returned in, in Rakim State plus interest. Right. Whatever the monetary value is, just to just to disincentivize that the state might do this um, wantonly. Would that be enough for you? Or you're just sort of saying the practice in general is objectionable until the point of conviction, at which point take it all for nonviolent crimes. I don't want this happening at all. For violent crimes, like if somebody beats somebody with a crowbar and you're going to take that crowbar, then I don't really have a problem with it. Well, it's not the crowbar. They want the whole tool set, right? They want (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Well, part of of the theory here, and um, you may know more about this even than I do, Rakeem, is uh, the theory is that the money was gained through illegal behavior. Exactly right. So it's not money that you're entitled to in the first place. And so it's not as though... And again, putting aside issues about cops lining their pockets or doing whatever corrupt things might happen. I'm just saying under the best of circumstances. Right. Uh, the the theory is that if you sold heroin to get the money, you don't get to keep that money because that's the proceeds of an illegal behavior. And so we're going to seize that money from you uh, because you're not entitled to it to begin with. And then either going to use it for a legitimate social or law enforcement purpose or as in the case of the uh, the one story that you told, um, it's meant to be set aside for the victim. Because that would have been her right to sue him for that money to begin with, uh, because, you know, he's a victim. Now, it's kind of a weird place because he's got the ill-gotten booty from not related to what he did to her, but he happens to be in possession of it. And so is she entitled to get it from him? I, I don't know. It's a weird gray area, but at least the theory is, you know, if it's put aside for victims and that's a process, well, that money ought to be there for the victims. I, yeah, that that seems outrageous to me, too. You know, in a case like this, especially if it's like, say, fraud, like some, let's say somebody has a Ponzi scheme, made a bunch of money. 
and then, you know, you get to the point to where they do get convicted, then I'd be okay with them using that money and giving it to the victims. I don't want to go into the government. I'd rather it, it, it go for the victims. Uh, when it comes to like heroin and stuff like that, it's hard for me to, to accept it because I don't believe that people should be arrested for them in the first place. But again, just to pretend like I do, I still don't. I still have a problem with the idea that the government can just come in and say the way you made this money, we don't like it. So we're going to take it, even though you haven't been convicted. That's the part that I was thinking about, because I'm thinking of, okay, a Ponzi scheme. If you need to get this money to give the people the money back, like if it was a scammer or a fraudster or something like that, taking that money makes sense to me because you need to give it back to who it belongs to. But if you made your money doing something illegal, I mean, you worked for it. I don't know. <laughs> I could be wrong there, but that's kind of where my mind goes. It's like, yes, if somebody stole this money from a bank or something like that, or they took the money from somebody's account or they did some sort of wire fraud, then give them folks their money back. But then it's like, okay, mm, the drug dealing, you got your money. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, especially without a conviction. I mean, and then there are states like Arizona where they reformed the law to basically basically say we can't take any of your stuff until we actually convict you. Or if we take it and then you don't get convicted or you don't get charged, you get it right back. You don't have to go through all that process. So in that case, it makes sense. But there are ways to get around that. There's something called the equitable sharing program that the federal government has. So what they in this case, what they did is because North Carolina doesn't allow them to do this, but you can apply for this program through the federal government, say, hey, we'll give you the proceeds of what we took from this person and we get to keep 80 percent. That's what the, the, the equitable sharing program does. Now, there has been leg- legislation introduced called the FAIR Act, the Fifth Amendment Integrity uh, Restoration Act that would basically do away with this. It's been introduced for a few years. It's been introduced this year. It hasn't gone anywhere. But again, even in states that try to fix this problem, the federal government is still allowing this to happen. Mm-hmm. You have to imagine that this is happening disproportionately not to the rich, wealthy and powerful who can amass lawyers to defend themselves against both false accusations and inappropriate seizure. But, you know, just everyday folks like, you know, Ranger and Rakim just walking down the street one day with their (laughs) with their watches and suddenly get tackled by police officers who say that that time piece is being used in service of a crime. You know, I think most people can agree that the way the way this program has been used has been detrimental. I know in some cases it it can be a legitimate, like Andrew said, a legitimate way to help law enforcement or even to help victims or to help enrich the community. But the problem is that all too often, just like just about every other government program, it it gets abused. And this is one of those issues. I can't let you throw this in with every other government program. I I wondered how many many barbs it would take, you know, come on. He's he's encouraging you. No, but so, so Jeff, the one, one thing I would say is even even, even as an advocate for, for this program in part, okay. In, in theory, um, I certainly agree with you that, if you take an endeavor like policing and you put some kind of an incentive out there to abuse power, uh, even a legitimate program that entices people to cut corners, fudge at the margins or outright engage in, you know, unconstitutional theft, um, that's always a concern, right? I mean, you know, the core principle, at least for me, one of my core principles is understand that when a, a thing is tempting, People will act in that direction. And I don't think you can argue that the ability to take 
significant amounts of money in the process of policing, even if justifiable, also constitutes a kind of temptation to bad behavior. And at least that ought to concern us. You know, do you structurally prohibit it because the temptation is too great or do you watchdog it even better? Uh, well, those are good practical questions. But sure, there's a there's a problem involved if there's if the stuff's available uh, and then you legalize the taking of it to some degree. Does that create abuse just by the existence of it? That's a fair question. Yeah, what's interesting to me is that even when people were setting this up, I mean, common sense will tell you it's set up in a way that's going to give an incentive for people to uh, abuse it. So it makes you wonder why they did it in the first place. But really, the main point for me is that one of the reasons why these things don't get reformed is that most people don't know what civil asset forfeiture is. I mean, I've had conversations where people, their minds are blown. You mean they can actually do that? Yes, they can. And they get away with it because this is more of like a a local issue that people don't really know about, which highlights yet another reason why we should be focusing on local government. I just feel like there's got to be a good law review article about how the history of this basically is. I don't know. Some Southern racists who want to take black people's property and just needed a justification. It just, it just feels so obvious. I mean, the fact that all of us are like, hey, this just seems wrong. How could it possibly exist? It just has to have. I, I'll i find the article for us. It's got to have a racist origin. I just don't, <laughs> I just don't believe because that's the only way that we internalize these kind of logics where these things not the only I've way, seen but. a crazy thing. I can't explain it. Gotta be racist. Gotta be racist. Gotta be racist. Actually, I'm gonna take that quote from you, Andrew. I see it crazy to me. I can't explain it. It's gotta be racist. That feels right to me, actually. If you look, if you want to understand the world, here's the way it works. It's it's logic and reason and racism. And if, <laughs> if it ain't one and two, then it's three. Okay. Like a whole podcast just on that. Like take an issue that people don't understand. Okay, well, let's find the racist orders, you know. <laughs> Oh, it, it, it's logic and reason, money, and it's racism. There you go. Now you have it. Now, now I got a full fledged theory. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love this. I might, I might actually look into doing that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I'll research the history. I wouldn't be surprised to find that to find that as well. I mean, I am glad that more people are becoming aware of this. So mm-hmm. I think at some point we'll have some legislation kind of reining this in and making it more more just. But in, until then, I mean, how many more people are going to be abused? Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So Kamala Harris has been talking or had been talking to a reporter at the New York Times for the past eight months. And that article that was released was filled with a lot, a lot of nothing. Um, and that is what we're going to be talking about. <laughs> well, her oh. first mistake, mistake was letting a New York Times reporter talk to her for eight months. Just saying that's a strategic. Eight error, months. Right. So my thing about Kamala is this. It's a very nuanced situation. 
I understand that she's a woman. I understand that she's a black woman. I understand that she's a part of a very unpopular administration. But at the same time, with me trying to give her that grace, it feels like she's not doing herself any favors and she's not doing anything on her end to help her seem more likable. You know, and that's the criticism that we have with with Hillary. And then that's a whole nother thing. Well, why do women politicians have to seem likable? And all of those things are very good points. But at the end of the day, if you in the game of politics, you got to play. And our good sis doesn't seem like she's playing to the best of her abilities. Some of the answers in the article were just outrageous to me. Um, one of the particular ones where he asked her, do you know that you have support of the people? Like, how do you know that? You're representing the people well. And she's like, did you hear this crowd? They were clapping for me. That's how you know. <laughs> and it's just like, Kamala, have a little humility. Um, so I just want to dive into that. If, when y'all read it, what were your initial thoughts? Because I was just very confused at her takes to some of the questions. And it didn't seem like she seized the opportunity of that press to make herself in the administration look their best. So, uh I'm not a fan, <laughs> particularly. Uh, it has nothing to do with her, of course, nothing to do with her being liberal, nothing to do with her being a woman, nothing to do with her being black. Uh, she just. She doesn't get I'm, I'm on edge every time she's talking, waiting for the weird moment, the awkward moment, the 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 inarticulate expression for somebody who spent her life making arguments in a courtroom. I. It's baffling to me. And, you know, one of the things that the New York Times article made is the, the, the kind of the idea that the closer she gets to the presidency, I think maybe this is kind of paraphrasing what Trump said in, in, in an interview about it. The closer she gets to the presidency, the less presidential she seems. And yes. it's odd. I, I I feel like, you know, she's been even speaking, if I were not, you know, my political persuasion, I feel like um, you thought you had a rising star and you found out she'd risen past where she should have been. You know, it's yeah. kind of what it feels like to me. And so, you know, conservatives, it's very easy to disagree with or dislike Kamala Harris. But, um, you know, I'll, I'll, say, I'll say it a different way. I disagreed with President Obama about almost everything, but I found him, um, you know, likable, refreshing, interesting, a fantastic speaker. She just doesn't have any of that going for her. And I, at least not in this, in, in what I have seen in her as being the vice president. It's whatever you thought she had bring, brought to the table. It just hasn't shown up and it happens again and again and again. And at some point, it's not a pattern. It's, you know, it's a feature of the system, right? I want to know what happened to her, because this is not the Kamala that was on that campaign trail when she was running for president. She had some zingers. She had so much life to her. And it's like I've seen the life be drained from her over the past few years. And I really want to get into what is that about? Like Can the I woman that she was that got her selected to be VP. It's not giving that anymore. Can I say, OK, in fairness, though. You say she had some cigarettes. My favorite thing from SNL, like during that campaign season, was by Rudolph portraying Kamala Harris saying, uh, yeah, "Mr. President, you know, Mr. Vice President, that little te- that little uh, what do you call herself?" She was like, "That little girl, that little girl was me." But I forgot she yeah. used something that you know, mm-hmm. that little pebble or whatever was me. It just kept, <laughs> that little pebble, sort of like that was a moment. Yeah, clearly it was played on and so forth. I don't know. I tend to think. Someone brought this up yesterday, and thank you for sending the article right because I hadn't I hadn't read it. Um, someone was sort of saying that the context in which Biden places her always required an extraordinary level yes. of diplomacy, and it seemed to me that. that she's a prosecutor. So the moments where I've really seen her shine, and where I think that if we wanted to give her 
uh, a national platform, you would choose issues that were closer to being black and white, or at least, because no complicated issue is black and white at that level, but at least allowed you to stake out a position that was relatively black and white. So right now, right, the Israeli-Hamas crisis that we have, Israeli-Palestinian crisis, perfect time if you wanted to have someone like Kamala Harris, because she could be aggressive about the position that the killing of innocents by a terrorist organization is always unjustified, under no circumstance should this be allowed, et cetera. But the moment you pull her towards something that requires an extraordinarily amount of public compromise, she tends to sort of vacillate and fall into one camp or the other without sort of striking the right tone. And I think I think it's actually about her training and her background, how she shows up. And so she could be very well prepared to have a better public presentation, but she's not being given issues that allow for that. Yeah, I kind of just think she's an empty suit, though. During the primaries, yeah, she did have a few lines, but I mean, that whole, that little girl, that was me, that that was very cringe. You know, I think he chose her because Biden said that he was going to choose a black woman. And I don't think that she was meant to appeal to black people. I think she was mainly there to appeal to, especially to, to white suburban women. And I think it worked. But the problem is that, you know, he could have chose a lot of other black women because yeah. she doesn't have it. She doesn't have it. Like like Andrew said, I mean, Obama, you could disagree with everything he said, but the conviction that he spoke with that he had the likability factor and, you know, the likability factor isn't just for women. It's for all politicians. If, if you're not, you're probably not going to get elected. And so I think with Kamala Harris, I think maybe they thought that she was something that she really wasn't. And they found out too late. I think that's what happened. That's what it sounds like. Like even in one of the questions they were asking her, like, how do you feel about what you've done for the party? And she was like, just ask me that again in 2024. And it's like, you're so confident that you're going to be here again in 2024. And that's I've said this a million times. That's just my criticism of that entire ticket is they're both so confident and they don't want to really give us anything to work with. A lot of the questions in the article, she's dodging the answers or she's given a very pre-thought little blurb. Like there's no personality there. And it almost seems, I think that's my biggest criticism with her and Biden. And it's just like, I don't feel any emotional attachment to any of the issues that they advocate for or any of the stances that they have. It just kind of seems like they're saying what they're supposed to say, particularly Kamala in, in this article. It's like, you're just saying what you're supposed to say. And then when that don't land, you just be like, mm, don't ask me nothing else. It's like, okay, but we're having a conversation here. You can't just be like, I'm done. Like that doesn't work. I think, you know, and again, speaking as uh, sort of an outsider to the party, right? Because I'm not on her side, typically. Um, she has a contempt problem. You know, the what the flavor of her attitude towards almost anything, to me, is always sort of how much of the contempt she really holds for the other side or for whomever is she going to let come out today? Because uh, it's so it's so it's so in her to be that way. And look. There are people who, you know, we all know people who are extraordinarily competent and they're also arrogant. And in a way, you kind of forgive them because they're super competent, you know, okay. And there are other people who are super competent and they're kind of humble. And you like that because, well, you know, that's the best of both worlds. Um, and it seems like with her, it's kind of like you you didn't bring the super capable, but you did bring the super arrogant. And um, <laughs> that mismatch is like doubly jarring every time I listen to her. It's just as a listener, you know what I mean? As a citizen. This is going to be the revenge episode from hell. I just I do not know how we are going to survive a President Harris. I know y'all say it's not, not going to happen. But 
<laughs> hey, listen, you don't. Uh, okay, I, you know, Rakeem and Amani, I know you may not hang out with my people so much, you know, conservatives all the time necessarily, but I will tell you among conservatives, here's how the argument goes Man, I can't stand that Biden. What's the alternative? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like that's the end of the conversation. You know, we I, I hate to say it, but it, the line has always been, you know, best insurance policy for President Biden, because n- nobody seems to want her, which is sad because you should want your vice president to be capable and wonderful and amazing. And if God forbid something happens, you've got another person who can do a great job. And it seems like nobody believes that. And yeah, that's I'm the kidding. problem. Like it's a giant missed opportunity. Like show people that you're worth their leadership or vice versa, that you're worth representing them. And she doesn't take the chances to do that often. Yeah, because she doesn't have it. It's not there. I mean, it's just it just isn't. I mean, if if it were, we would have seen it by now. I mean, I expect that all politicians are going to have their gaffes or their bad days or their bad seasons. But there's a reason why her approval rating has been so low. There's just nothing there. Surely nobody would rise to the level of, say, the presidency and have gas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Certainly that wouldn't happen. I'm, I'm convinced, though, that if the Republicans had the Senate, we wouldn't be seeing any impeachment inquiries because they might actually get what they want and then get what they don't want. So mm-hmm. I, I the only reason the House is doing it is because they know it won't go anywhere. Basically. Great for show, but terrible for real world outcomes. You know, so my question is one thing, one thing I wanted to throw in there is I heard a friend of mine said to me um, who I don't know if he worked directly for her or close to her, but. I remember saying that I thought the fact that she had lost the Democratic primary was a necessary part of her ascension, that most great politicians lose at some point in a a contest they don't expect to lose. And as a consequence, have to do some soul searching, some reflection, and they come back. And the most striking thing that he said to me was, oh, she doesn't believe she lost. I was like, what do you mean she doesn't believe she lost? He's like, she withdrew before California. She doesn't believe she lost. Now, I don't know if this is true, Mm. but it would... It would, to me, fundamentally concern concern me because it would show that she wasn't capable of growth, that she wasn't capable mm-hmm. of taking losses and recognizing that they lead to something better. I want not to believe that about her. But then to Jeff's point, you sort of watch or all of your points, you're kind of watching it proceed and you really start to ask yourself, where have you been humbled such that as you proceed, you recognize that there's something in you that had to change in order for you to maximize your potential. Because the potential is all over her as far as Mm -hmm. I'm concerned. And I'm willing to sort of be there with it, but it doesn't always feel like they're willing to grasp it. And before it used to be about her staff and other things. I'm not, I'm no longer convinced it was staff. I used to think it was that. And that was why I started off with this kind of positioning problem. But I'm just wondering, like, is it there where she's willing to say, I lost and here's how I grew it could be that i'm i'm just so this is what i was thinking i have many thoughts on that one of my thoughts is that could be that she could just be here just super overconfident because she just believes she's the president of the united states which is nuts um i think another part of it which was brought up in there too is just her being so scared about her image and she was saying that she didn't want to be she made she put made the word ghettoized like she literally put that in there and it's like literally yes i know Yes. And so it's like, okay, is she trying to come off as more stoic because she doesn't want to seem ethnic or something? But it's like now you're just landing flat 
and arrogant and that's not good either so it's like i'm thinking either she's overconfident and she just feels assured in where she is or she's trying so hard to put together this image that doesn't offend anybody that it just completely falls flat and doesn't do what she's intending for it to do yeah, and that brings up a question though i mean because just listening to this conversation all throughout the time where she's been Vice president, I always hear, especially from the left, oh, well, she's not popular because she's a black woman and because she's a woman. It is sexism and racism. How much credence do you guys give to that? I mean, just based on what you guys said, I mean, how much credence do you give to the idea that she's not popular because of her race and because of her sex? In, no, with I, her, I mean, you think of like Condi Rice, you know, who, or, or you know, nobody, people might not have liked her, but there was no problem. You know, it wasn't even a factor. Just she's great. She's black. She's a woman. Okay, fine. You know what? I just I, I don't buy that. I find that uh, sort of a convenient excuse. There, there may be people for whom that's an issue. I uh, can't mm-hmm. deny that there are sexist and racist, of course, in the world. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, they're relatively few and far between, in my opinion. You know, compared to most people who are just in 2023, this is just who we are. It's fine. It's no big deal. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. Even Michelle know. Obama had a cult following. Like she got a lot of criticism, but people love Miss Michelle. So it's really it's just that she doesn't. Yeah, I, was, yeah I mean, I would agree with both of you and disagree in that. I do think um, Michelle Obama was the mom and what, mom in chief or something like that is what they used for her. Right. She was the nation's mother. The issues that she took on were broadly things that parents and families could agree on. Um, if you're asking, Jeff, do I think many people in the country have a have a problem with the idea of a black woman cop running things for the reasons you might very well say, well, it's because she's a cop or it's because she's a woman, because you but that combination, I actually think is potentially problematic for the electorate as a whole. Right. I think you've got and actually I would um not frame it as black white, which is our white people having a response to this, but actually a black woman cop creates certain problems for the black left for her, mm-hmm. which she raises. Mm-hmm. It creates certain problems for people who are anti-statist in one way or another. It creates problems for people who are anti-statist in particular. If a black person is at the head of the state, that bothers them, right? So forth and so on. And so her particular identity and configuration, I do think is the source of um, some of the criticism, but it's not all of the criticism. And so to leave it all there ultimately robs her actually of the ability to change things. And I think that's how they have to reflect on that, because if it is a black woman cop can never run the country, well, then she can never run the country. And like, let's just go home. But if it is actually as a matter of perception, there's a possibility of improvement. She needs a different portfolio. She needs to grow in certain ways. Then right, she can reach her potential. Does yeah. she have an uh, Jeff, you, you make me think of something I hadn't really thought of before. Michelle Obama never had to prove she was black, right? I mean, it was obvious. It was clear. It was not, I mean, just not an issue, okay? But Kamala Harris doesn't fit any of the, what you might think of as stereotypes of the strong black woman, the, you know, the grandma, the, what, it, it, I don't know, pick it, okay? Does she run into a problem where black people don't perceive her as being authentically black or that that's an issue that, you know, they kind of like, that creates a problem for her among, you know, black Democrats, for example. And I don't you know, I'm in no position to answer the question. I'm just you're making me think of that. And I don't know whether that's an issue or not. So it's hard for me to say exactly how widespread this would be in the black community. But I mean, a lot of the black people that I've interacted with, they don't really view her as black. I mean, I mean, I'm sure most do. 
But I, I, there's a lot there, like, because at one point she wasn't identifying as black as much as she was identifying as Asian, which right, I, right. that's a position that biracial people are, are put in. I mean, Tiger Woods had to go through that, too. But I mean, you, you do bring up a point because I have seen a lot of black people saying, oh, well, she she ain't really black or she's quasi black or, or, or whatever. Um, and I. And I mean, that must be difficult to deal with. I mean, but I mean, that's surely unfair, right? It's unfair. She has to deal with that. But I just wonder how much that is a factor yeah. she has to deal with. I, I people think still see her. As Obama. Yeah. I, yeah. I think they see her as black, especially because she AKA like she went to, she went to Howard. AKA from Howard. AKA, All right. Like people see her as black. I think she, she collard greens a couple of weeks ago. And I'm like, what are you? <laughs> sometimes she tries to play into it but i think especially with the indian uh because she's part indian too i know that's a biracial struggle and you know gotta identify and all that so i know sometimes she like speaks on that but i think that's mostly just her acknowledging the other part of her i really think her main thing is just she needs some dang press help somebody needs she needed a press coach <laughs> Or something, because every time she gets down and does these sit down interviews or has some type of quotes that she's given, it's just not good. And it's like, are they setting her up for failure or is she just that bad in front of the press? And then I get to thinking she's been in the public eye for years. She was a senator, for goodness sakes. It's like she should know how to talk to people. So I don't know. I'm trying to see where the change happened, what went wrong and who we know Kamala Harris to be today. And is it something that's fixable? Is it something that's going to even be able to help them win? Or is it something that's going to lower their chances of winning in 2024? Yeah, I think my hope is is aligned with that, actually, Amani, that, you know, maybe this article comes out and it's, a again, a reflective time. I don't know why I'm preaching reflection. This is one of those moments where I need to go check in on myself. Maybe, maybe I need to be reflecting on self. But, it, but anyway, it feels... I, I always like the part of the Iron Lady, you know, about Margaret Thatcher, played by Meryl Streep, where they acknowledge that she has the potential to go all the way. And she says, gentlemen, I'm in your hands. And she goes through this whole thing, right, where she changes her voice and she changes her look and her style. And the elements are all there. It's still who she is. But ultimately, it has to be presented in a different way. And I think for someone who has been so confident about their presentation in a way that Lady Thatcher wasn't it may be hard to actually turn that over to somebody and say, okay, what I did, one of my favorite coaches, favorite um, teachers once asked me, Rakeem, are you sure that the things that serve to get you here will serve you going forward? Changed my whole life, right? And I think she she has to be in the same position, which is you have made it to the vice presidency. Yes, obviously things you've done up to this point were worthwhile and your instincts are right, but maybe just maybe, it's something that you used to do that won't serve you going forward. And what are those things that you have to let go of? You know, it makes me wonder if the people around her are telling her that because she's obviously not getting it. But it's like, yeah, I think you're right, Rakeem. But does she have people around her who can say, look, Kamala, this ain't working like there's something you got to do something different. Or are there people saying that to her and she's just not listening? It's hard to tell. I'm interested to see how her approval rating either continues to increase or decrease over these next few months. They got about a year left. So. Let's hope that in this last run, she can turn something around and she can kind of bring back some of the excitement. People were excited about her in 2020. It was a big part of my belief. Don't you mean they got five years left of money? What did you miss? They got one more year left to change. Stop seeing here. You go again. Like I said, this is going to be the worst episode for us ever. Turncoats. Turncoats.